The past is fake. The future is real. I know where I want to go. I'm excited about it. You know, it's like you can find yourself thinking about the past or decisions I should have gone with X or Y or Z. You can't change that. The future is real. Focus on the future. Focus on where you want to go. Imagine it. And to me, like, that's the exciting part. Welcome to the Decibel Podcast. I'm excited to welcome my friend Shai Bannon, the founder of Elastic, to the show. Shai is one of the true pioneers in open source, and his company is at the center of enterprise data, cybersecurity, and AI. He is one of the forefathers of the search industry and still has a lot of unfinished business in the space, and I'm excited to welcome him to our show. Shai, it's great to have you. Thanks, Joan. Uh, excited to be here. Shai, you have a really unique founding story. If it's okay, can we start from the very beginning? Where did you grow up? What was life like in your family? And when did you discover computers? Yeah, I'm from Israel originally, and I grew up in a city called Ashdod, which is about 30 kilometers south of Tel Aviv, right on the Mediterranean beach. So I grew up going to the beach a lot and surfing and running around. It's a relatively new town. It's an interesting one. It started because Israel wanted to have another port next to Haifa. And my grandfather moved there to build the port, one of the first ones that did it. So it's kind of like a city that grew up and kind of like came into being very quickly around the early days of Israel. And it's supposed to be like a very well-planned city. It was a you know fascinating city to grow up at. Because it was such a new city, we got a lot of waves of immigration because Israel had a lot of waves of immigration. So I had a chance to grow up with a lot of diversity when it comes to people coming from many different places. My parents came from Morocco and Turkey, but, you know, tons of people coming from Europe and Russia and Iran and Iraq and obviously Morocco and uh, other places. So I grew up mostly with my grandparents and my mother. My grandfather worked at the harbor. A lot of appreciation for knowledge. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by those generations that, just wanted their kids to be very well educated, but didn't come from an educated background. So it's almost like always living in a conflict, if that makes sense. I grew up working a lot at the harbor when I was 13, where my grandfather used to work. Always like study hard and make sure you succeed. But then there was also the, well, you have a safe place to work at the harbor if things doesn't work out for you. So that was great. Very loving and caring family that just supported a lot of where we wanted to go. I think a lot of people don't know that they have a safe harbor to return to. But in your case, it sounds like you literally grew up with one. And I think a lot of technical founders can look back and remember the moment when they discovered computers. They became gamers or hackers earlier in their life. Do you remember when you fell in love with programming? I think so. You ask me, you know, when I started to work with computers, and to be honest, I wasn't really a tech kid or something along those lines that got a computer when he was seven and then immediately started to hacking or something along those lines. I worked pretty hard to save for my first computer because I needed it for my studies in high school because I studied uh, electronics and computers. But I only studied electronics and computers because that was the most advanced courses that were there and I wanted to excel. But I didn't do it because, you know, I didn't spend my weekends programming or something on those lines. And then when I applied for university, I initially applied for electronics because that was the main thing I studied when I was in high school. And then uh, in one of the weekend newspapers, I counted the number of jobs in the weekend newspapers. I still remember it. And computer science had one more job than electronic engineers. So I called university and I changed my role to computer science. That's how I started to get into computers. And, you know, I remember arriving at university and I was typing with two fingers very slowly and people were like typing extremely fast. And I, I think that this is a, a lot of 
what at least I learned when I grew up, it's you can find beauty in almost anything that you do. So it's about finding the passion, the beauty in what you do, and then really being curious and understanding how things work, why they work, how you can improve them. And and that's something that I learned and took from. And I, I think I bring it to a lot of the things that we do at Elastic. Because when you're running a company or starting a company, writing the software is only part of what you do. There's a lot of other systems and processes that are fascinating to learn how they operate and how you can maybe hack them or understand them and try to make them better. It sounds like you didn't immediately know you would be a technical founder. And I know the Elastic founding story starts a little later and we'll eventually get to the famous recipe app that you wanted to write for your wife, which eventually became the inspiration for Elastic. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about the early years of your career leading up to your first open source projects. You know, when you live in Israel, you tend to go and work at startups. This was the early 2000s, right? Yeah, 1997. So there was like the dot-com was happening. I actually ended up my first first job, fresh out of just starting a second semester. Uh, I applied for work helping build heads-up display for helicopter pilots. So that was fascinating, like building real-time systems, programming in PLM and C, and working with the U.S. Army and the South Korean Army and the Canadian Army. So that was a lot of experience condensed into a very short amount of time. And then start to work at you know many different startups. None of them were really successful, but learned a lot about how to build software, which was really interesting. You know, it's like you ended up just joining a company typically as a software developer. Even though I would progress to be a team lead or an architect, I always loved going back to be a software developer and really understanding how the company works and what makes it tick. And then just doing whatever is needed to make it successful, trusting in my capabilities to progress. I think one of the traits in Israel that it really encourages people to go out and be adventurous and take whatever they can and then, you know, give back when they do that. And I think a lot of people know this already, but usually everyone in Israel serves time in the military. Did you serve in the IDF? I did not. I had a, I still have a a kidney disease that is pretty dangerous. Now, thankfully, nothing goes on. And doctors are very surprised that nothing happened as a result of it. But when I was 13, they identified it. And then the IDF did not uh, enlist me. Do you still live with it today? It's supposed to never leave you. You know, it's like it's a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So conceptually, by this time, I should not have any kidney left and be in dialysis. But apparently, it's, you know, (laughs) it's not... I'm glad that you can laugh about it now. And I think the first time I heard this, I was in shock. Obviously, this must have been a pivotal moment growing up. And I've always wanted to ask how it's shaped you in some way. Is it part of what makes you unique as a founder? I think that, you know, when you're 13 and you're getting this type of news, it's kind of like shocking when you get news that you have this chronic disease and and the doctor tells you that you might lose your kidneys and be in dialysis and you have this shock. I guess, about how to deal with it and what does it mean. And I was taking some drugs at the time that maybe really blowed up. Like if you look at me when I was 13 or 14, you go like, this is not the person that we really recognize. And I, I don't know, I think you end up just building this like mental tenacity, I guess, about just trying to work through it. You know, you have this big thing in your head and you learn to live with it. And I think I've just learned to work with big stuff that are just happening around you and just walk through them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you feel like in some ways you have had no choice but to learn to be fearless, like live every day, live the moment? 
Yeah. Nothing really to be fearful about in everyday life because there is so much uncertainty that you've been exposed to above and beyond what most people see in their own day to day. I think I, I've learned to accept fear and live with it. I don't know if you really can, you know, ignore fear, if that makes sense. You just need to accept it, internalize it, compartmentalize it <laughs> to a degree, and then just learn to operate as it happens. And, you know, there's a lot of things that you're going to be afraid in your life. And yeah, I've had many, many moments like that in, in my life as well. And they're still frightening, but you just learn to work with them, if that makes sense. Uh, and that's what I try to teach my kids as well. It's like, it's not about not fearing something. It's about going through the process, even though you fear something along the process. I know this is not something you share regularly with people. So I appreciate you sharing it now with our audience. I'm sure a lot of founders can appreciate that Mental tenacity for all of us comes from somewhere deep within, and we don't always want to talk about where that comes from. So I appreciate you doing it here. Let's transition to the fun part of the story. Tell us the Elastic founding story. And if you don't mind, can we start with the famous recipe app that you wanted to build for your wife? The first open source project is an interesting story. When I got married to my wife in 2004 or five, she wanted to change her careers. And she did a first degree in logistics. She was doing her second degree and she really loved cooking. And I told her, just change your careers, go be a chef. So she started to work in a restaurant in Tel Aviv, completely changing her career. And, you know, me believing that in order to excel, you have to go and study in the best places that you can reach if possible and then go through there. We ended up moving to London as a young couple and she went to study at the Cordon Bleu. And I moved to London without a job, without anything, just you know, trusting that we'll be able to go and find one. And for a month, I really tried to figure out how do I make myself interesting to the London job market. So I had my first shock, which was, you know, when you're in Israel, it's all about startups and you go and have this like very easygoing interviews with very deep technical questions and things along those lines. And then in London, it was all finance, <laughs> uh, especially at the time. And I would go to these interviews and I had, had to wear a tie and uh, know about Scrum or whatever, why Waterfall is agile processes, not only about software, but also about software. And, you know, I was hacking quite a lot about C and C++, but Java was becoming more popular and there was a lot of open source tools around. So, you know, the best way that I think you can learn is by trying to build something. So I try to build something. And then I said, okay, I'll go and try to build a recipe app for my wife as she accumulating knowledge in her schools and everything, then she'll go and capture it in this app. I wrote probably one of the worst designed apps possible because I shoved every piece of technology that I can into it just to learn it. But I wanted the experience to start with the search box, Google and search and everything. It just felt so simple. And I wanted to explore that simplicity in that context. So I tried to go and figure out how to, how to build search in an app. And I learned about Apache Lucene. And yeah, I can talk for ages about Apache Lucene and the amazing community there. But I started to try to use it. And like any good software developer, I realized that it was not easy to use it in a Java application. So I created an abstraction on top of it. That at the time, at least, you know, you could take like business object and map them to the relational databases. It was like taking business object and mapping them to a search engine. So I wrote this layer and this abstraction and I thought, okay, what, what, what can I do with it? And I said, why not open source it? Like I've learned how to write this code and how to use it with other open source projects like Hibernate and others like in the Java ecosystem. 
and they ended up open sourcing it, not knowing anything about open source. I had no idea. I had these foolish thoughts that I open source it, and if it's successful, I'll get like a thousand developers. But it was ended up being very, <laughs> not exactly the same, but that was my first foray into open source. Do you remember the moment when you knew it was going to take off? No, I don't, I don't know if there was a moment. It was like really very progressive. You know, I open sourced it and people started to use it. I didn't even know when would something be successful or how does it work? You know, I created the IRC channels, the forums and things along those lines. People started to use it. I got invited for the first time to the server side conference and I gave a talk and I was like the last talk in the last day and I was so happy and excited and people were using it and I got a chance to talk to some of people that are really respected in the open source community. It ended up moving to Open Symphony where, you know, the Atlassian team was heavily involved and it was like slowly becoming more and more useful and popular. And to be honest, the, the biggest part there was, first of all, it was a lot of work, that project. <laughs> you know, it was like I ended up writing most of the code most of the time. A lot of work that goes beyond just writing the code, helping in the forums. You know, I was almost like obsessed. If someone would ask a question, I would just have to figure out how to help them and how quickly because someone was stuck and I can't have it on my conscience, if that makes sense. Did you have a lot of committers in the early years? No, I, I ended up working with uh, a lot of people in terms of how they ended up contributing. But like most open source projects, to be honest, end up having like one or two developers working on them. And that was the case in this open source project, just me working. And there wasn't a company behind it. There wasn't a foundation behind it. Even when it was part of Open Symphony, it was just still just one person project. But it was similar because it was a library. So it was similar to a lot of other open source projects at the time. You have one developer helping out and a lot of amazing, amazing people doing incredible job. But whenever someone contributed code, I was all giddy and I was like, let me go and try to figure out how to help you. So Compass, your first open source search project was wildly successful. But I know you eventually open sourced Elastic years later, so you must have had some unfinished business. Tell us that story. Yes. I think the biggest part about Compass, the first part was just around learning about open source. The second part was around falling in love with search because I started to see people implementing Compass in many different applications and exposing search to their users. You could see people almost like liberating their application to a search box, right? It's like I worked as an architect in various banks in the UK at the time in London. And my trick was going to various teams and telling them, give me a couple of hours and I can add a search box to your application. And then the next day, like a trader will suddenly load their application and they want a search box and go like, I can't believe that now I can explore my data and I can understand what's going on. I don't need to like browse through it, if that makes sense. I can just search and find trades, confirmations, backend systems, whatever. And I just fell in love with the experience that it has. Like it has a very short distance between a search box and the user. Like the technology, it's, it's almost like immediately gets exposed to the user. You search something and you know that the search was slow. You know that the search was not relevant to you. Search was bad. You talk about the technology in emotional terms or in, you know, in qualitative and quantitative terms. Uh, and this is amazing. Like a technology that gets exposed directly to the users is fascinating and you work very hard to make it successful. And I just fell in love with that experience. And yeah, and it, it took about a year, I think, to gather the courage to write a new open source system. Because, you know, the first time I had no idea what I was walking into, the second time with a kid, with a young daughter, 
I was like, is this going to be again where I spend my weekends and nights and second job and third job at the same time? But I felt very, very passionate about it. And I thought that it was something that people really wanted to use. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like this time around, you knew it was going to be successful. You knew what you were signing up for. I had a very strong conviction that this is going to be successful because I knew that search was useful. I proved it through Compass, the library. I knew that the quote unquote, the market, the user base, the community wanted something like that because they were asking for it all the time. I saw the success of NoSQL systems and I thought that none of them really focus about getting data out right? It's like all of these NoSQL systems were like, we store it in columnar format or things like that. And none of them was like, how can we make it easy for people to just put data in and search it and find it easily? So I made a point of not calling Elasticsearch a NoSQL system, even even though people really wanted to call it a NoSQL system, because I said search is useful regardless of where you store the data. If you put it in HDFS, put it in Elasticsearch. If you put it in MongoDB, put it in Elasticsearch. It doesn't really matter in a relational database, or you can just put the data in Elasticsearch itself as well. And that's perfectly fine as well. I wasn't trying to pick fights, if that makes sense. I think a big part of the Elasticsearch community that I wanted to create was a welcoming one. Shai, can we go back in time? Because I think a lot of people don't remember the state of enterprise search back in 2010. At this point, Google's gone public. Everybody understands the power of search. But remind everybody, what was the state of enterprise search? Why was it so hard to get that magical search box in applications and on company data? Why didn't Google just take the market? I think it's a great question. I had a chance to experience a different type of search. Why? Because Compass was a library that people integrated into their applications. So I got a chance to see legal applications and recipe applications and finance applications. Like people just put Compass into any type of applications. And it was very obvious that search applies to any type of company's data. And at the time, at least, enterprise search was mostly focused around making, you know, I don't know, SharePoint and Documentum. And it's like expose the company data to users, right, uh, in your organization, It was less around just take any type of data and treat it like a data store, like a search engine. Uh, And my point was Elasticsearch was going to feel like an amazing document-based data store, JSON document-based data store that starts with search as a technology or as an experience. And then you would inspire users to put any type of data. I don't think that that was a very common message to say for search engines back there. And when it comes to Google, it's a good question. You know, when I told my mother that I'm going to build a search engine or start a company around it or things like that, she was like, but Google is already out there. What's going on? But Google, I think there's a big difference between building a search engine that specializes in the web and serving ads and things along those lines towards building a generic search engine for any type of like JSON-based data. And Google didn't have a product that said, okay, you can just go and take data and put it in any format and search it. They had the Google appliance that focused on, guess what, enterprise search, where you would plug it into your organization and start to be able to search your documents and things like that. So nobody, I think, really treated search as just a generic way to interact with any type of data. And I don't know if you would give yourself credit for this, but I do believe after about 10 years of trying to sell the Google search appliance, they eventually end of life it and gave up. So I would say that in the beginning, maybe it didn't look like it was going to be as easy taking on Google, but with the fullness of time, they ended up packing up and sunsetting that appliance. Yeah. And by the way, the system that they recommended to transition to was an enterprise search product that we built on top of Elasticsearch. (laughs) Uh, That was a wonderful way to, I guess, close the the loop there. 
Yes, you deserve to declare victory on that chapter of the book, and it is one of my favorites. The entire Elastic story obviously has many, many chapters. Would you mind if we focus on some of the earliest ones? Can you walk us through how you pulled together all the pieces of the puzzle in the very beginning? Sure. So when I started to develop Elasticsearch itself, I knew that I was going to open source it and I cared a lot about you know, bottom-up adoption. And tons of it is around a wonderful user experience. So I, I'm trying to study as much as possible other systems and read as much as possible, not only understand how they work, but how do people feel about them? You know, making it extremely appealing to developers. And I think there's an art to it. They love ease of use. They love things that are progressively hackable. Start simple, but they can go deep. So those type of things, and that's how I try to develop Elasticsearch. Uh, when it comes to open source, I had more experience around it. So obviously I open sourced it. I don't know, maybe I had a good hunch or I have a good nose to smell like successful things around. I think Elasticsearch was one of the first projects on GitHub. So the whole success of GitHub, you know, Elasticsearch was carried by it and the interface and Git and things along those lines. A lot of the experience and everything happened on GitHub, on mailing lists, on IRC. I was very available. I wrote a lot of code at the time, 60% or 50% of the time was coding. A lot of the other time was people maybe don't appreciate it, but like answering in the beginning, a few mails a day, but then it was like tens of emails and questions every day and questions on RC. And it was, it was a lot and helping people and they have bugs and they fail and they try to deploy it and it doesn't work. And the cloud was happening, so making sure that Elasticsearch was being used in AWS easily. And, you know, I think we innovated on things like AWS discovery and making sure that Elasticsearch discovers itself using AWS APIs and things along those lines. There was like a lot of freshness to it that people feel like it's interesting, it's innovating, it's fun, and it's moving extremely fast and it takes our input into account. I think those are characteristics that developers love and those are things that we try to carry with us, you know, up until this point and into the future. But I think at the end of the day, there's almost like a core aspect to why Elasticsearch was successful, which is search. If you have a good search system, people need search. It's extremely liberative. There's a good search system around people will end up using it. And then they'll start to be very creative around the type of data, what type of analytics you can do with it. Because search is not only about top 10 results, it's about analytics that you do as you search to data. So a lot of the early community members were, were part of the content creation around all of these type of use cases that people took and ran with it, which was amazing. And now that you mentioned analytics, this is a nice transition. You started out with a vision for creating search and a recipe app. And then ultimately you moved into analytics. Tell us about Logstash, Kibana, and the other major moves that you made to create the Elk stack. So in 2010, I open sourced Elasticsearch and I already quit my job uh, a few months before, I think. And a few months later, I decided to dedicate the next couple of years to Elasticsearch because I had a strong conviction that it's something that is going to be useful and potentially something that I can maybe start a business around it in the future. And the ecosystem around it was amazing and people started to use it. In the beginning, it was mostly very narrowed around, you know, why is it better than Apache Solar? How can I implement enterprise search? Which was perfectly fine. But I was waiting for all of these like other use cases to come along. And then I remember Jordan that developed Logstash pinging the Elasticsearch Slack channel saying, hey, I'm trying to store logs in Elasticsearch and 
and I'm not terribly sure how to use the APIs. And I started to help Jordan on IRC and I joined the Logstash IRC channel as well. And I started to read up about logs and I realized that logs is an amazing market. It's huge. First of all, it's amazing for search because it's a lot of unstructured data. We developers get very creative in our log messages and our errors, including, you know, log messages like how the hell it's not supposed to get here. If it gets here, then something really bad happened and things, what have you. And you want to be able to search them. So that was an amazing market. Almost no players in the open source market around storing logs. So it felt like a market that is ripe for open source disruption. And I started to really invest in it because I wanted Elasticsearch to be the place that you store logs. Because Jordan created Logstash and Logstash is a wonderful tool that takes data, collects logs, collects information, processes it, but it can store it everywhere. It can store it in HDFS, it can store it in Cassandra, it could store it in MongoDB, and it could store it in Elasticsearch. So it felt like a year of Hunger Games of let's make sure that Elasticsearch is the best place for Jordan to store logs or for users of Logstash to store logs in Elasticsearch. And, you know, somewhere in Phoenix, in a newspaper backend system, in a newspaper in Phoenix, Rashid was standing there and he was tasked with creating like this monitoring system and he was using Logstash and Elasticsearch and he hated the Logstash UI, so he created Kibana just to build a UI around logs that are stored in Elasticsearch. And that became, over time, the Elk stack and Elasticsearch Logstash and Kibana, but it all like totally bottom-up, not very enterprise-y, if that makes sense. I think this point is so important. You had a community of use cases that had evolved bottoms-up and happened to lead you into enterprise use cases like log management, analytics, cybersecurity, and ultimately now AI, which we'll get to in a second. While we're on the topic of the enterprise, I do have to ask you, because I can't think of anyone better than you to ask this question. What were your choices for monetization at Elastic? And looking back, was there anything you might have done differently? It's a great question. I think the best open source projects are one that keep the open source spirit and foundation alive, but you have to have something around open source. Even foundations have companies that contribute to the open source code Elastic, the company's biggest contributor to Apache Lucene. But can you guess which other open source projects were a big contributor to? Apache Solar. Because for a very long time, Apache Lucene and Apache Solar were together, merged together. Uh, and every time we would implement something in Apache Lucene, we would go and change Apache Solar to make it better. So it's not a zero-sum game, if you will, when it comes to a community and contributions and things along those lines. But you also want to have a good business model around it. It was very obvious to me, at least, that we're not going to sell services. Selling services around an open source project is a really bad business model for many different reasons. But one of them is like it has this almost like inherent contradiction, which is in order to sell services, you need to have a software that is complicated. A software that is complicated is not loved by developers. So, you know, if you have an opportunity to go and simplify the product, you suddenly have this wrong, almost like incentives within a services company uh, that says, well, if you simplify the product, we won't be able to sell services. <laughs> so we wanted to build commercial features, enterprise commercial features around the product. And by the way, from the early days, we wanted to also provide a cloud product. So when we raised money, it was around both commercial features that will end up developing into the product, uh, but also end up building a cloud product. And then there's the delicacy of which products, which capabilities are you gonna make commercial. 
how do you think about a cloud product that was all very, very early days. And I think, you know, we learned a lot uh, during that time. Can we go back to the famous moment in Elastic's history when you created a new form of open source license, SSPL, which was specifically designed to defend you against Amazon, I believe. This is now a blueprint for how a lot of open source companies choose to defend their intellectual property. And I'd love for you to tell the whole story again from your perspective. Why did you need to create a new form of open source license? When I created Elasticsearch, I created it under an open source license. And by the way, it's funny, like when I created Compass, I created it under an LGPL license because Hibernate was LGPL. And, you know, you can get into all the licensing discussions back then and it was very heated discussions and someone said well why don't you change it to apache license and i changed it to apache license like uh, apache lucene it was fine then when i created last character i created it under apache license and we wanted to go and create a cloud service in elastic and we launched our cloud service uh, relatively early but we were always thinking, but even back then, about what would happen if Amazon ends up taking Elasticsearch and providing it as a service, because obviously Amazon was very successful. And we were concerned about it because Amazon was not known to be a, a very uh, helpful to uh, their uh, community or their ecosystem. Partner friendly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, you would read all the stories about diapers.com or people that end up like selling on Amazon website and then changing the, the thing on them and whatever. And it was very obvious to me, at least, that the same mindset was existing within AWS. So it's like very ruthless, if you will, and very like zero sum game. It's like it's we're going to take an open source project if it's successful and make it work. People don't know it, but actually Amazon tried to get into search before that. They built a product called Cloud Search, and it was built on top of their A9 acquisition, and that sucked. It was really bad, and Elasticsearch was successful. Uh, and then they, they tried to rebuild it on top of Apache Solar, and that also sucked. And then I, I think Elasticsearch service that they launched was, I think, one of the really first services that they launched taking an open source product and hosting it. Obviously, it was very scary as a small company. I think we were like two years old or three years old as a, as a small startup. But yeah, it's like they took Elasticsearch and as it is, they call it Amazon Elasticsearch Service. And that sucked because at least to my mind, it's a trademark violation. And, you know, I took a loan to register that trademark when I was on my own. And, you know, things that you felt at least back then that were established as a way to protect open source were being ignored by Amazon. It felt like Amazon kind of like got into this like enterprise software market very bluntly with AWS very quickly. And the, in the beginning, you know, a, a nice way to look at it is that they didn't know better. They would just take a service and call it Amazon Elasticsearch Service. But, you know, one of the ways that people really appreciate about open source was around trademark and IP. And it was like a thing. That's the way that you protect your code. You take a trademark. That's why I, <laughs> you know, trademark Elasticsearch. But that was completely ignored by Amazon. There was a lot of confusion in the market around whether Amazon works with us or not. I remember, again, that there was some surprises to me in terms of the mindset. Werner Wogels, in one of the first reinvents, tweeting that the Amazon Elasticsearch service is out and we're happy to work together with Elastic, the company, trying to make it better. And it was completely false because they didn't work with us at all around it. And that mindset and that way of competition persisted for many years afterwards. It was a lot in terms of trying to figure out how do we go and compete with 
big Amazons and, you know, nobody wants to be the diapers.com of open source world. And I think we're eventually were successful, but we set out on a path to compete with Amazon that was a multi-year path. And I think now we're in a very different place and Amazon is a partner of ours, but there were uh, quite a few of tricky years over, the, <laughs> over our history. And I know you haven't declared victory just yet, but at a minimum, I think we can say that you paved a path for other open source companies to navigate their relationships with the cloud providers. And also, in some way, do you feel you've been a part of a wave of companies that has changed the way Amazon views open source? First of all, yes. I think Amazon matured and they understood that some of the things that they did in the early years when they moved fast and ignored trademark, ignore IP, were very liberal with the truth when it comes to whether <laughs> they partner with companies or not or things on those lines. Now they're much more responsible. I think they also understand as they get bigger and really understand what it means to operate in the enterprise software market is that they have to work with other companies, you know, and in order to be able to be successful. So it's not something that they can go and operate at this level. Yeah, I think they brought a lot of the practices that they had in the retail business into enterprise software, and now they realize that some of them don't work. I think Elastic really helped when it comes to the education, the evolution of the cloud business, the understanding about how it works. And I was very proud to play a part in that evolution and and try to make sure that these like open source projects and companies and foundations that all exist around it end up finding a very successful route through cloud partners to be able to be successful together. I do think I need to say thank you. This story is amazing. And you have given the open source community yet another commercial path. And without this work, I think licensing in this space would be a lot harder. Yeah, and I can talk about licenses as well. Like it's, it's very interesting around licenses. People ask me about open source licenses a lot, for example, startups. And I think people fear things too early, if that makes sense. So, you know, people say, oh, but uh, Amazon or X might take our software and provide it as a service and then we will lose. But you need to start with focusing on making sure that your software is actually useful and people adopt it and try to go and progress and invest as much as possible in making it useful to others. It pains me that we cannot call our Elasticsearch open source today, but still we have our community and obviously we start from a very strong foundation and our community is following with us. But on a personal level, I'd love to be able to call Elasticsearch open source. I think a lot of the way that we operate, the license is very permissive that we created. The way that we operate is 100% the way that we've been operating in the past. But if you're like a young startup, go and use AGPL or another open source license and focus on adoption. And hopefully us and other similar companies like us have paved the way for you to be able to compete better, work better with cloud providers compared to how it was in the Wild West, <laughs> if you will, when we were just all getting started. Well, speaking of the Wild Wild West, let's talk about Elastic and the Gen AI movement. In many ways, you've been building up to this moment. I personally think Elastic is one of the great untold stories in the next wave of large language models. Would you mind taking everyone through your vision for Elastic and your future in enterprise AI? I think search has always been involved with machine learning and, and AI for years, right? From natural language understanding and analysis to algorithms that you end up implementing in one form or another. And we just announced a release of our own model that we've trained called ELSA. And that's an exciting one because like, it's not an LLM, obviously it's not a large language model, but it is a large language model that you can use within Elastic and have semantic search that is 
very, very impressive. Like you should see demos of it. On a romantic level, you know, it was interesting. Like I love search and we had this amazing use case in the beginning, in the early days of Elasticsearch. But since then we've focused also in observability and logging and security and finding threats. But it feels like search is back. Like the search box is back, the textual interfaces, the workflows around it, the excitement about search, the excitement about discovering data through search interfaces, through chat interfaces, the power of search is kind of like back and people realizing how exciting it is. For example, what are my health benefits? Because I need to use them to X, Y, and Z. My son hurt his elbow. And like, if I'm an employee asking that question, the LLM has no idea how to answer it. You need to be able to go and fetch the user's information, fit it to the LLM, understand where they live in a distributed company like ours, for example, and all of that. So that like level of interactiveness and information is going to be driven by search systems. And I love it because this is why I started Elasticsearch. And it makes me very, very excited about the future of Elastic. I know that this entire journey started with you imagining a search box for your wife's recipe app. Is she going to get a chatbot soon, a conversational <laughs> chatbot for recipes? So the funny thing is that I've never finished, obviously, writing that recipe app. But I think the good thing is that I empowered all the various recipe apps and systems that they use, the New York Times cooking app and things like that. All of, all of those search boxes are powered by Elasticsearch, which is very humbling. I mean, if you see a search box somewhere, there's a good chance that it's being powered by Elasticsearch, which is amazing. One of the great powers that come from LLMs is that they've been trained on open source code. Mm. It is now able to read code that we've contributed to the world, and now it is able to rewrite code based on what it has been trained on. As one of the godfathers of open source, how do you feel about this new relationship that we have with large language models, where we have trained them on our code and they are now able to take our code and in effect reauthor it in a new way? I'm putting aside for a second the whole like licensing, GPL, virality, or whatever, things on those lines. I learned how to code better thanks to open source because I could look at the code of Apache Lucene, of Hibernate, of Spring, framework of you know many others. I got to be a better developer thanks to all the code around me that I got a chance to learn, see how better developers than myself ends up you know writing software and trying to imitate them as best as possible. If we think that we're going to use as humanity, we're going to use LLMs as a way to make us better, faster, more productive, more innovative, then they should have access to the code. There's no doubt in my mind. And it's totally fine also that they write some of it. Elasticsearch was a lot of boilerplate code, I can tell you that. You know, code that I would have loved not to write so I could help more of the community when I was answering questions. But at least on my end, I'm sidestepping the more maybe philosophical question around what's the role of an LLM in society. I do really respect your opinion on this, so thank you for weighing in on it. If I could just ask you a couple of more questions that I think our founders will care about. You have acquired a lot of great startups and have made them successful. Tell us a little bit about how you think about the kinds of companies you want to acquire and what's been your recipe for success. Our acquisition history was focused on our platform. If you think about Elastic and Elastic as a platform. So our acquisition strategy was around making our platform better, making it more approachable, and helping us uh, get into areas that we thought that were very important for us strategically. The nice thing is that thanks to open source, maybe people underappreciate it, companies were already integrating with Elasticsearch, were already using it. 
And that was an amazing thing because you could already see the integration happening. These people already loved Elasticsearch. So when they joined Elastic, they joined a place that we all felt like we knew each other because we worked so much together already. And they were already working in markets that we knew that we could go and innovate in, right? Like when we got into logs, it was very obvious to us that we were getting to traces because people started to put tracing data in Elasticsearch. So we went and, and joined forces with Opbeat around APM and trace data. Same thing with security. We were being used for like significant security use cases, storing just security threats and searching through them across the world. So we knew that we wanted to get into security. Uh, so that was the exciting part. Making them successful afterwards, we had the foundational aspects that I mentioned, but it's a lot of work. A lot of the work happens afterwards because you want to rewrite potentially the software a bit. You want to integrate it into your distribution we focused a lot on rewriting the software almost always to integrate it into our distribution versus letting it run on the side. Those are typically the two type of acquisitions because we had a platform play and we spent a lot of time with the team, a lot of time off-sites and meetings and what have you to make sure that they feel welcomed. I also had this always sense, it's funny, but like whenever we join forces with a small company, I kept on the back of my mind, are we good enough for them? You know, that was my mindset. Are we good enough? Are they going to be happy? Versus, you know, I think one of the reasons why acquisitions fail is because people say, oh, they're joining this like large successful. They all should be, you know, very appreciative of the fact and thankful and what have you. And my mindset was on the other extreme. Is Elastic good enough to have them join us? And I think that that's an important one. If I flip the question around, so you've been approached for acquisition numerous times, chose to go public and become a standalone company. I think some founders have this mindset of, there's just no way I'm ever going to sell. And some founders maybe along the way have actually entertained the idea. What's been your history with acquisitions and how have you thought about it? I think we were growing very well for years. And we never felt like we needed to entertain acquisitions because we felt like we were doing something right. You know, it's like we were building products, users were loving it, building our community and growing our revenues. So th those type of things, obviously they required a lot of work, but it didn't feel like, you know, we need to go and change the way that we think or find a second ad or something along those lines. So I'll be honest, like that made it very easy for us to go and say, hey, like we want to go and try to figure out where can we take it? Maybe it's going to be nice to join another company, but we feel like there's something special here and we want to see how far we can take it uh, on our own because it's a lot of fun to go and try to do that. There's other companies in the world, right, where maybe they're not growing as fast. Maybe they hit a ceiling. Maybe the market is not growing. There's many different reasons why companies stall while still having great people or still having great products. And in that case, I think acquisitions totally makes sense. We just we were never in that stage to think about it. Any words of wisdom or lessons learned for your younger self, something that if you could go to the younger version of yourself, maybe at Compass, maybe in the early days of Elastic, is there something you would want to say? I really don't think like that. You know, it's like, it's, it's fascinating. You know, there's a show called Succession. And obviously the people in Succession are not the best people in the world. But I still remember a line people ask uh, Logan Roy, which is like a very well-known uh, titan of the news industry personality, very big personality. They ask him, have you ever thought about where you came from and everything along those lines and how you built? And he, 
He says something very interesting, and obviously coming from the music industry, it's fascinating. The past is fake. The future is real. And I was like, the past is the past. You know, it's like we made decisions with the knowledge that we had. And, you know, I won't necessarily look back and say, oh, hello, I wish I would make that decision or whatever. The future feels very real to me. Like, I know where I want to go. I'm excited about it. And, you know, it's like you can find yourself thinking about the past or decisions. I should have gone with X or Y or Z. You can't change that. The future is real. Focus on the future. Focus on where you want to go. Imagine it. And then just start to plan towards getting to that area. And that's, to me, like, that's the exciting part. Shia, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.